Welcome to today's episode of our Dollars and Cents podcast. If you are listening to the Dollars and Cents podcast for the first time, it's a show where we get people to discuss some of the most interesting finance topics. And in today's episode, we are diving into the Singapore Budget 2024, presented by Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Lawrence Wong on 16 February. It's also a budget that comes as, at a critical time with the world facing lots of geopolitical challenges. So let's discuss what this means for Singapore and her citizens. Joining me today to discuss the topic is none other, as usual, Dinesh from the Dollars and Cents editorial team. Dinesh, welcome to the show and I'm glad to see that we are in national colours ourselves. Yeah, I actually wore this for another CNY lunch, so happy that we are also representing Singapore. That's great. And anyway, Dinesh, last week you wrote about 24 things that will impact Singaporeans financially from the budget. I didn't even realise there were 24 things that could impact me, but so 24 is a lot of things. Um, to, to discuss, but we're not going to discuss all 24 things today. For those of you who are interested, you can read about all 24 things in the article that we'll put in the show notes below. What we will discuss today, however, is what I think are the four major changes in government policies that were announced in the budget. And I will go to the first one. It's my personal favourite topic. A lot of Singaporeans love it as well. It's CPF. Alright, so there are two major changes for CPF that was announced during the budget and uh, for those of you who don't already know if you missed the budget the cpf special account the big news is that it will be scraped it will be closed you know for those turning 55 from 2025 onwards so what would happen from 2025 onwards is that your the retirement account will replace the special account rather than to form a fourth cpf account so that means when you turn 55 your special account will be closed the money will be transferred to your retirement account and you will not have any more special account anymore Right, um, so Dinesh, you know what do you think? Firstly, I just want to ask you: Are you surprised by the change? Did it come as a shock? And what do you think is going to be the impact on future retirees? Yeah, I was surprised. Um, I I wouldn't say I was sh shocked or anything, but you know, it was a surprising move that it was pretty unexpected. Um, and and when he did it, actually, I felt it was a very elegant solution to a few different problems. Right, so. One, you know, um, it removed the ability for Singaporeans to do the CPF shielding hack, which for many years, you know, tend to prioritize or favor those who were well off or able to conduct the CPF shielding hack. So, can I just ask you to just briefly explain the CPF shielding hack for people who may not be uh, familiar with it, even though I know going forward you can't do it anymore? Yeah, so the CPF shielding hack is, in essence, you have a lot of money in your special account. You don't want all of it to go into the CPF life scheme. Which in is general, through the retirement which account. Which is through the retirement account. So what you do bef right before you turn 55, you got to time it quite nicely. Um, you take it out of your special account by making an investment um, in a low risk. Um, the T-bills are a good um, An investment, investment not yeah. a real investment. Right. It a is way. a real investment. I mean, you want to put in the T-bills, you actually earn more than a 4.08% okay. at some point. So it could have been a real investment. Um, but the solution is to take it out from a special account fund your retirement account with the minimum amount, the 60000 so 40 from your special account, 20 from your ordinary account. And then once that's done, you sell off the investment, transfer all the money back into your special account and earn the 4-plus percent um, risk-free return. Okay. Right? So, so that amount of money never goes into the retirement account and it, what you're shielding it from actually is it never goes into a CPF life account, I think. I see, I see. So it's kind of like a workaround so that people who actually had enough money in their special account to fund their retirement account uh, for CPF life don't actually have to do so. Or, or they can use their, the money from their ordinary account to do so. Yeah, right. 
Um, so that's one of the solution, right? I think the other one is that it's quite nicely um, encourage more funds to go into the CPF life scheme. Because the CPF life scheme, as, as we understand it, you know, it's kind of an annuity scheme, a national annuity scheme. So everyone is within it. And if you don't live long enough to draw more than what you contributed, you know, it goes to the rest of the, the Singaporeans. So it's kind of for the benefit of all Singaporeans. And so it encourages more money to go into the CPF I life see. scheme, which is a good thing on a national level. And the third thing that you know, I've put down is that you know, the government will also not have to pay the long-term interest rates on monies that are you know, able to be withdrawn on demand. So this maybe applies to, to people who have a lot of money, able to fund their retirement account up to the FRS, um, but don't want to in- top it up up to the ERS or beyond that. Um, now, now we can do four times, which I think will be your next question. Um, and they are able to withdraw on demand their special account monies while still being able to earn the long-term interest rates of 4 plus percent now. So for me, it's quite an elegant solution that solves all of this problem with just taking away a seemingly one small or one shocking change removal of the special account. And can I just say, um, because I also feel that, you know, personally, if you ask me, like the, the removal of the special account uh, doesn't actually do a lot of people any disservice, right? Because for the most parts, and I think CBF have some stats that shared about it, most people actually, once they transfer their special account to their retirement account, um, they don't actually have, you know, any ex- excess CPF special account savings. So th- it's not like they're going to lose much interest rate because what's happening now is that if you have more money in your special account than what you need to set aside in your retirement account, moving forward, it will flow back to your ordinary account, which earns a lower interest rate. But I think what the government um, data has put out is that not many people won't be, I think like, it's, I can't remember the percentage, we, we can clarify it, but I think it's 99% of people won't be affected. Okay. Yeah, so it goes back to, to the point, right, that this solution um, is actually just preventing more well-off people in society to benefit from the CPF life, uh, CPF scheme. Um, and, and it doesn't impact that many people, like you say, right? 99% of people won't be impacted. Then I'd just like to ask a question because I am seeing some uh, online chatters and some people are very unhappy uh, that the special account is actually being going to be closed when people reach 55, why, why do you think there is that sentiment maybe among a minority of people? Maybe that minority is that 1% of people who actually want to conduct this. And I think increasingly going forward, maybe people who are a bit younger as well were intending to do this when they reached just before 55. So while it doesn't affect people right now, that 1% is a small number, it may impact people a lot in the future. All know? right, so younger people who right. are already planning yeah, to do yeah, it because are not considered as part I think of the, the 1%. Same, the same government statistics will show you that you know, people in the past were not earning that much in the first place to have such a big CPF um, savings, right, as a whole. The younger generations, each cohort will probably have more and more CPF savings. Especially if they are doing all this top-up at an early age for tax-saving reasons. Yeah, correct. So as people interested in CPF would know 1M65, you know, you continuously contribute to your CPF um, special account, Maybe they had the intention to do this um, and now it's no longer able to. All right, all right. I guess it's a bummer for some of these people um, who, who is in the 1M65 or even I think 4M65 and all those variations of that. The second change, which I think would make these people happy, actually, if you ask me, is that they have actually increased the enhanced retirement sum. Uh, so it used to be three times of the basic retirement sum, but the announcement is that from 2025 onwards, the enhanced retirement sum will increase to four times of the basic retirement sum, the BRS. So this will raise the ERS for next year to 426,000 instead of the initial 319,500. So I think, um, you know, people in the 1M65 community, they, they have a lot of money in their CPF savings. 
I would say this is good news for them. Would you agree? I guess people who didn't want to, who, who wanted to do the CPF shooting hack, it probably didn't matter, probably doesn't matter to them. Um, but in general, I think it's a decent move because um, as we know, cost of living is really going up. You know, inflation is going up. We don't know what's going to happen in 20, 30 years. Probably we're in that trajectory, you know, where we're already hearing things like higher for longer interest rates, persistent inflation. This probably means cost of living is going to stay quite, quite elevated, right? Um, so it makes sense for the ERS to kind of be increased. Um, and from what I see in the government websites, right, um, this will increase our estimated payouts, our estimated monthly payouts from the CPF life scheme from $2,530 a month to $3,330 a month. So about 30% more um, in terms of payout. It will help people who want a little bit extra uh, money in their yeah. retirement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, that's one thing that I also agree with because, um, you know, sometimes, I mean, I'm not saying that 2005 a month um, at age 65 isn't enough. That's the previous enhanced retirement sum. But it does feel that some people, especially as, as we have lifestyle inflation, uh, as we reach a certain age, we may not necessarily want to reduce our lives, our expenditure. Uh, it does feel like, you know, some people may want more. And I think this, I think the most important thing to say is that this gives them the option to go up to four times yeah. or three times or four times, right? So they don't have to go up to four times. They can do so right now if they wish to. So I think that is definitely an option that... I think one thing to add, they don't even have to go up to that three times. The yeah. ERS is just an option, you know? It's an option. They don't have to go up right? to two times of the BRS, the FRS. They don't even need to save the FRS. I mean, right? you have to put You can the pledge your, your property yeah, and for, save for up to the, the BRS. BRS. Yeah. Yeah. So in essence, it doesn't really affect you but it helps give you more options if you wanted to put more into the retirement yeah, account. I, I think it's always CPF good life. when there's more optionality for CPF members to choose to set aside a larger sum if they wish to do so. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, I mean, there are, there are some other CPF changes. I know the MRS has did, there mm -hmm. are some changes there, but we won't go into the details because these are existing schemes. I think before we, before we move on to the next one, I have one wish list that okay. maybe I, I want to sure. raise go it ahead. up, right? Um, Mr. Lawrence Wong <laughs> might be listening to this. I mean, it wasn't announced, but since there's an encouragement of people to save more um, and increasing the ERS for that purpose of saving more in their retirement account and going to CPF life, maybe you can explore giving people some tax benefits for topping up beyond the FRS, you know? All right, all right. Because right now, I think we're capping, or the government is capping um, the tax incentive once you reach the FRS. Okay, okay. So I think if you want to encourage more, I mean, that, that can encourage people to do more. Now, I think that's a good consideration. Uh, I guess it, it really depends on whether, uh, ultimately, whether the full retirement sum is, is what they, the government wants to encourage people to hit towards. Uh, and then maybe any amount beyond that could just be if you like to you can but there's no tax correct, incentive correct. but that's a good suggestion I think uh, maybe some maybe that should be a future consideration um, I think moving on from CPF to another controversial topic which is obviously property in Singapore and more specifically property for young families families with children who um, you know uh, might be looking for their first BTO flat. So um, I'm not sure if you guys know, but there's always been this scheme is the Parenthood Provisional Housing Scheme. So um, Danish, maybe you can just explain what this uh, PPHS for short stands for. Yeah, I'm just going to the HDB website actually and reading this out for you guys, right? So it says basically your eligibility. To be eligible for this scheme, you need to rent a flat under the PPHS. If you have booked an uncompleted flat, under our HDB sales exercise. So, so that's a, like BTO a BTO flat. Yep. A BTO. Um, to be eligible, you need to be a married couple. So both first-timer or second-timer qualify for this. Um, applicants need to be under the fiancé-fiancé scheme. Okay. Right? 
a sub point here is that you need to submit your marriage certificate within three months upon collecting your PPSH, PPHS flat. Um, yeah, so kind Do of... Do you need a child? Yeah, yeah. All oh, right, okay, so you need a kid. Correct. Okay, okay. I mean, I just want to confirm that as well because I thought that the word parenthood suggests that you need to be a parent. So you also need to um, have a child right now um, in order to qualify for the PPHS. So let me just first ask, what does the existing PPHS give Singaporeans? Okay, so as a parent or prospective parent, I think even um, expectant um, parents can, can apply for it or are eligible for it. You get rental flats at below market rates, you know, so that's the incentive here, right? Below market rates already. Um, while you wait for your BTO to be completed, right? So these are initially for people with young children or expectant uh, parents. The supply of flats typically are from rental flats. So from what I read, um, it's mostly from selective on-block redevelopment schemes. Sus. Yeah, or Sus possibly flats. flats that are located in older housing yep. districts or estates. So, so right now what the government is saying is that because they feel potentially that there is insufficient of such rental flats that HDB is able to provide, that it seems that they are open to expanding the PPHS scheme to include open market flats. So these are HDB resale flats that are eligible for, for rental, right, from, from the open market. And what it looks like is that they will give a voucher for for, for these applicants who are renting flats from the open market to subsidize their rent for up to a year. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, they have put that one-year timeline. Um, they haven't actually said how much. So I guess that's, that remains to be seen, how much um, is given. Um, so I think it may not have such a drastic impact. Um, I believe, I, I think you may, you may agree or disagree, but to me, it may not have such a drastic impact. You know, Firstly, because I'm just reading it out. Um, is limited to people with income of $7,000 or less in the first place. Right? So those are kind of lower income. So if you really want to rent like a, a nicer place, you know, maybe a five room, even four room sometimes, um, you may need a household income of more than $7,000 in the first place. Um, I also read um, in news articles, you know, that the rental of, um, the supply of rental flats, you know, expected to increase. So in 2021, kind of, after the COVID pandemic or right around the COVID pandemic, it was about 800 supply, that rental units. Um, it was 1,800 in 2023 and, you know, it's going to be increased to 4,000 in 2025. So they're ramping up supply. So hopefully, you know, um, it will impact less and less people. And lastly, you know, I think within this time frame, all of the delayed BTO projects would have been delivered, right? So those who are impacted because of the pandemic would have all been solved. So the ongoing one will just be the natural rate of people who are affected because they applied for existing BTO flats. Yeah. But I'm always a bit concerned when there is such subsidies because one um, unintended effect for a lot of these subsidies is that because of the subsidies, it indirectly increase the, the rates of the flats because in, in some sense, the landlord knows that, hey, you know, you got... Um, you got some vouchers from the open market, so you are actually going to get a subsidized rate. Um, so they feel like, hey, perhaps they can charge a bit more. And of course, you know, it's a willing buyer, willing seller market. But if a lot of people come into the market with all these vouchers indirectly, you know, it would increase the cost of rentals. Uh, the other thing I'm also um, thinking about is that would it incentivize or encourage people of families or, or young couples with kids that would otherwise just stay with their parents 
to say, hey, you know what, since I got this voucher, let me just rent a HDB flat for a year while waiting for my flat instead of the current existing status quo, which is just staying with my parents. Do you think that it could change behavior as opposed to just helping uh, maybe the lower income families subsidize their rent? Yeah, so just to quote another statistic, right? So the, the supply of the flats was 1,823. I believe, you know, they said the, the oversubscription was about three times. Yeah, that's a lot. So right? there was about like f- maybe 5,000 people that are vying. within this um, um, cohort, right? That vying for the rental flats. So it may incentivize more people. Like you say, it probably will incentivize more people. We don't know how much. But I think if you are a person or family living with your parents, um, why should you be disincentivized to, to rent a flat if that's what you want to do, actually, if that's what you, you prefer, right? So I think it shouldn't be seen as, hey, these people had another solution, but now they're abusing. So it's not really an abuse here. Okay. It's because, you know, their lifestyle would have been upgraded if they had just done it. Actually, they prefer to do it, but because they can't do it, they, they wasn't eligible or they didn't get a queue number on the rental supply flat numbers, they have to live with their parents. So I don't see it as abusing the scheme. Um, and in actual fact, I think maybe another wish list can be like, if you're really serious about helping this group of people, and, and I think we explained it should be less and less down to the natural rate of people who actually need it because they apply for the current um, BTO flats, you should extend it beyond one year because you want to help them throughout the BTO building process, which they say is about three years or up to four years now, right? So maybe more than one year of help might be needed. Yeah, man, good point. I, I think a lot of it would have to do in, in a, inevitably with how much exactly the, the subsidies are going to be yeah. uh, and whether or not it's significant or not. I just want to come to the last thing. I think this is it's the last, but it's not the least. To me, it's one of the biggest uh, change that was announced uh, in the budget, and that is the training allowance. There's a couple of things in here at the same time, but basically the essence of it is that for people age 40 and above, they now have the opportunity to essentially go for a kind of like a skills future level up program along with a subsidies for full-time diploma and they will get training allowance as well when they enroll in those uh, full-time course. So I'm just going to go one by one just to explain. So the first thing that would happen when you turn 40 and above, and, and this goes for future cohorts, so we will enjoy that as well, mm. is that you'll get a $4,000 skills future credits um, and uh, this will be um, used only, confined to the use of in selected full-time, part-time and undergraduate programs um, as well. So there's a limited usage of this $4,000. In addition, uh, when we turn 40, we will also receive subsidies to pursue another full-time diploma um, at the polytechnics um, or IT or arts institutions from uh, 2025 onwards. So you and I, we may be classmates again um, soon, yeah, right? Not, not too far away from us. <laughs> right, and, and the last one, the last uh, announcement, and, and these are all linked to each other, is that if we were to enroll in a course, a full-time course, let's say a full-time diploma, we will also receive a training allowance equivalent to 50% of our average annual income. Uh, this is kept at $3,000 a month. So in other words, what it means is that if you're earning about $6,000 a month, uh, you, sub- you, you enroll for a subsidized polytechnic course, you will get a uh, training allowance of 50%, which is up to $3,000 per month. And uh, this is for a period of 24 years, uh, sorry, 24 months. Um, and, and, and I think this is huge because, um, I mean, it's not insignificant. Yeah. Um, I think the government is really putting their money where their, you know, their, their mouth is, which is like, you know, they've always been advocating about upgrading mid-career um, upgrades and mid-career transition. And it feels like, you know, this really realistically could 
enable a lot of Singaporeans, um, especially those who are earning $6,000 or less, to actually encourage them to go for, for upgrading and then perhaps a mid-career transition. What, do you, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, I think in the last few years, mid-career has become a buzzword that I become more familiar with as well. I think like four or five years ago, I've never heard of this term and then suddenly... I've heard it like almost everywhere, right? Every time uh, an announcement comes up, you hear the word mid-career. So I think the government definitely is a signal. They're quite serious about upskilling, not just upskilling, but you know, ensuring Singaporeans remain relevant in the workforce, right? Um, it's quite interesting. I, I noted, right? It's quite interesting that you know, um, when DPM Lawrence Wong was delivering this part of the budget, you know, he did say that you know the initial five hundred dollars of Skills Future credit were like a basic tier, and you know, deliberately allowed to be used for a wide range of courses. Okay. Right? So, and this one is a little bit more targeted, like you mentioned, right? You can only use it at certain tertiary institutions. So, I think the choice of words used was quite interesting. The people who actually qualify for it might be, might have to be at a higher tier, right? You can't just go for any old course. Right. You have to qualify you for You have to that. qualify for the polytechnic Correct. diploma that you yeah. want to enroll in. And, and it's quite a commitment as well, right? These courses are not just one, two days or one, two weeks. You know, yeah. They are typically years, which is why, um, you know, they do give that, that um, training, allowance. training allowance for up to 24 months, right? So that commitment is there as well. Yeah, I mean, it says a lot about the government approach towards lifelong learning. So it really goes beyond the typical, you know, just a couple of months, $500 SkillsFuture credit. Um, and this is, I think, another thing to note is that this is for everyone, every Singaporean who turned 40, you and I included, um, regardless of whether we are currently employed where, or, you know, we're currently looking for a job, right? So you don't have to be unemployed in order to qualify for this. You, you can, uh, in fact, it, it, I would say you want to be employed because then you get the training allowance. So if you are not actually making, uh, or you don't actually have income the, the year before, then your training allowance will just be lower, right? Or if you don't have a job, then you don't get a training allowance. But for people who are actually working, they do get 50% of their income uh, as training allowance. So this actually incentivizes people who are actually already working yeah. to go for those courses. I'm not exactly sure whether it has, oh, it is, has to be a full-time course. It has to be a full-time course. But I was just coming to like, I'm not sure if this means you can't take any other side gig or self-employment income. Uh, we will just have to wait for the details to be out. Uh, but if, if but even if you can't, you know, I think three thousand dollars is 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 quite uh good because you, you are being paid to study essentially. No, I think the the training allowance is um given if you were working, right? Yeah. But the four thousand dollars skills future level up program, you know, is eligible for anyone who wasn't even working, right? So, yeah. So that is two separate things actually. Okay. Yeah. 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 As, uh, and and the subsidies for everyone regardless yeah. of whether Correct. you know. So you could you could take a part time course if you're working and you just want to use the four thousand and still earn an income. I just want to ask a somewhat sensitive topic. I don't want to give anyone the wrong ideas because we don't know the details for this scheme yet, but do you feel like it could potentially be abused? I think as with any scheme, you know, anyone who wants to abuse it may find a workaround here and there, you know. Um, maybe a couple of groups of people that come to mind. I'm not sure if abuse is the right word again, uh, but maybe those who are self-employed, you know, I'm not sure how... <laughs> what do you mean by... No, I'm, so I'm not sure how it will be affected, right? Because they can... Oh, they, the they can continue to work yeah. as a self-employed person, Correct. right? They, they can work less. They, they can not work. Yeah. Or they can stop work for a while and then start again. There's nothing to stop them. I think it's unfair to stop them also from yeah. doing that, right? Um, while still collecting the training allowance. So I'm yeah. not sure how it's going to be implemented. Yeah, I guess one way of thinking about it, and I was thinking about it over the weekend when I heard this, was that, you know, perhaps there are people who are self-employed. You know, um, I'm just going to say, you know, like... You know, 
get economy workers, tuition teachers, and it is possible that they also want to move away from being self-employed where your income is 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 fluctuating to a, a full-time job, right? So it is possible that um, the training allowance will be useful. Um, they might, you know, I, I think they sh- would still be within their right to, to no, some thing. self-employed it's for them to income. Because to even work, students right? can work part-time, right? Yeah. If you want to. Yeah. Uh, but I think there might be a group of people who may be disincentivized to work, especially if they're not enjoying what they do, right? So maybe if they hate their job enough, you know, they can just quit um, take up some of these courses and maybe they can go into freelancing or becoming uh, a gig worker, right? So then it might disincentivize some people who are already working full-time to leave their jobs. Yeah. You know what? I was talking to someone recently, someone from HR and I was saying like this basically means that everyone who turns 40, if they don't like their job and they're not earning that much, it actually makes some economic sense for them to, you know, just accept that 50% pay cut, you know, because basically if you earn up to 6,000, then you get 3,000, right? So if you don't like your job at age 40, you know, you are basically encouraged to, hey, you know what, just quit if you really hate it, go take a diploma or an IT program uh, that would allow you to enter the space you are in um, and essentially get a, a chance for a reset in terms of career. It's a real mid-career switch, if anything. And I think it's unfair to penalise such a person from entering the gig economy as well. So maybe they should be able to. Yeah, I mean, time will tell how people uh, will approach this. I think it starts from next year onwards. So uh, we'll see, you know, uh, more details then. Uh, but thank you so much, Danish, for sharing your thoughts as always. Before we end, I just thought there would have been one more All right, five okay. big changes. I think one five of the big, big things, maybe not much information about it. That's why we, we're not talking about it in depth. You know, unemployment benefit is kind right. of a big thing to me as well. Um, implementation not out yet, so maybe discussion for another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unemployment benefits, yeah. So details will be out, I think, uh, as mentioned by the uh, DPM uh, during his budget speech. So unemployment benefits look like it, it's here to stay in Singapore. We will talk about it uh, lo- logically when it comes out. Uh, but Dinesh, thank you so much again for sharing your thoughts. And for those of you who are watching or uh, listening to the Dollars and Cents podcast, we also hope you enjoyed this episode and found it useful. Thank you. Thank you.